0: Hello, I'm Alejandra Bronkman, your host for New Books in Caribbean Studies. I've just finished my conversation with James Davis about his absorbing book, Eric Walrund, A Life in the Harlem Renaissance and the Transatlantic Caribbean, published by University of California Press in 2015. Davis is Associate Professor of English and American <music> Hello, I'm Alejandra Bronfman, your host for New Books in Caribbean Studies. I've just finished my conversation with James Davis about his absorbing book, Eric Walrund, A Life in the Harlem Renaissance and the Transatlantic Caribbean, published by University of California Press in 2015. Davis is Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Brooklyn College. The book is a biography in the best sense of the word. Davis invokes this complicated man and the many settings in which he lived, including Guyana, Barbados, Panama, New York, Paris, and London, in an elegant and compelling fashion. At the same time, he draws on walren's journalism and short stories and situates them within a broader context of the intellectual conversations of the day. And finally, he makes an argument about the stakes of telling the stories of lives which are less well-remembered and for whom the archives are more scattered and harder to access. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. I hope you do as well. Hi, James. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me today.
1: Hi. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me um, on the project.
0: So... You're a professor of English and American Studies, and um, I'm curious how you came to this to this subject and to the to the person who's the subject of the biography. It's a, it's the book is a transatlantic, multi sided story, and Eric Walrond actually doesn't seem to have spent that much time in the United States. So I'm wondering how you arrived at the geographic framing and at Eric Walrond as a subject, and perhaps the real question is which one came first.
1: <laughs> yeah um thanks uh I had been working in on a previous book on a chapter about the way that um the Liverate publishing company was marketing black writers in the um nineteen twenties um for another book, and the writers who were affiliated with that publisher um were Mostly, they were fairly familiar figures, just a handful of them. And the one that I really wasn't familiar with was Eric Walrand. And um, I was curious and thought I should probably come back to this just to see what it's about. Um, the other writers are all, you know, people who are anthologized and are generally read in African American literature courses. And I thought, huh, I wonder. I don't know. I wonder what this book, Tropic Death, is like. I wonder why there isn't more known about him, his work, work and his life. So I kind of had that in the back of my head, um, not for a next book project, but more for, like, just, um, you know, something to dig around and see what there was. And um, then I learned that there had been, um, I think it was 97 um, publication of an edited collection of Warren's work, Um, not the book Tropic Death, but a a bunch of his journalism and um, some fiction and things. And I thought, okay, that's a good place to start. And when I read that work and I read the book Tropic Death, and I read this um, incredible introductory essay to that edited collection, which the collection is called Winds Can Wake Up the Dead. It's a quotation from Marcus Garvey and the editor is Louis Parascandola. When I was reading that introductory essay, it was clear that um, a tremendous amount of archival research had gone into just writing this brief introductory essay, but that even that had left so many pieces of the puzzle unsolved and just so many enigmas. And the other kind of realization that I had reading the work is that the work itself is is just extraordinary. I mean, the book Tropic Death is so strange um, and certainly very strange for its time and place. So that's all to say that the kind of spark for it came out of a previous project. And then as I started scratching the surface a little bit, it seemed to me there was just so much more um, to learn and so much more that could potentially be said. Um, if, you know, if one could undertake the research and you know, I'll just add briefly that I didn't set out to write a biography at all. I'm not familiar with the craft of biography writing. And, um, I, th- my first thought was to try to write a sort of, you know, literary critical essay, um, or maybe more than one essay, maybe a conference paper that could potentially become a journal article i didn 't know for sure. and I did that. I presented a paper at a conference, and um, the more I thought about it and the more questions that I got from people who had heard the paper or who I spoke to about it, the the um the life itself became much as pressing, I guess as pressing an interest as the work and so um i found out about a fellowship for biography writing applied to it this was 2009 after i had already started work on the project um got the fellowship so i was able to take a year off from teaching basically to really dig deep into the research some of the theoretical underpinnings i was interested in and um and just get my head around what it would mean to think about this as a biography, as opposed to, you know, some essays here or there that were basically like literary studies essays.
0: So actually that was my next question. And I was curious to know what, when and how you realized the book would be a biography and what you think
1: hmm.
0: we get from, from reading a biography. I, I have to say that I enjoyed it tremendously because it's not something that we, Ordinarily, come across in kind of the academic fields, right? And so, just sitting and contemplating one life, I, I found very um, illuminating in lots of ways. But I wonder if you you had particular aims for it as a biography in particular.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I struggled with it um, for two reasons. One, because there there is a certain overlap between writing literary critical essays, like I'm kind of accustomed to doing, even if they're very historically grounded or informed and writing something that has the narrative arc of a person's life. And there's, there are some amazing kinds of opportunities that that form uh, offers. There are also constraints. I mean, there's, we've all probably read an you know, biographies that are kind of wooden and they're kind of sort of mechanical in the kind of inexorable press forward through time. And then this happened and that happened. So I feel like the challenge to me, again, being unfamiliar with the genre was to try to borrow what I could develop from the kind of novelistic devices of making a reader interested in what might happen next. And um, that was that was definitely what i was tra- trying to challenge myself to um to do so that the narrative would propel the reader forward and that somebody who was not a specialist in the field or may have never heard of this man before could become interested anyway um so that was sort of one challenge the, the other one had to do with the particular Person that I was writing about and the existing archive about him. So, you know, I mentioned before I started scratching the surface and realizing there was more here. But even so, I thought that any kind of book about him was going to be like a slender little volume because, you know, the man published only one book-length work in his life. And, yes, there was a lot of, you know, journalism and, you know, literary essays and things like that. And, you know, he lived a very interesting life, but I didn't expect to be able to actually locate a lot of archival material. And I just didn't expect to be able to kind of spin it into anything. Well, I don't know, very long. And so I thought, well, that's fine. You know, I would like to write a short book and people prefer reading <laughs> short and sweet books and nobody wants to, you know, pick up uh million page you know tome on a completely obscure caribbean writer they've never heard of so this will be fine and i'll you know i'll i'll write it short and sweet and as you can see it's not at all short and sweet it's actually significantly shorter than the first draft was which was almost twice as long and just terrible but um but the, the the challenge as i say was to to try to draw on what felt at first like this, you know, kind of disparate and um, spotty archival record um, and assemble it into, you know, the kind of sequencing and causality and things like that 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 biographers have to work with.
0: Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about the archive. I usually start at the beginning of the book, but I'm curious, in the epilogue, you talk a little bit about the archive and the kinds of sources that you were able to look at. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about those. You really, I I thought that your use of them made him really come alive.
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that's so great to hear. Um, that's, that's the big, that's the big challenge. Um, yeah. So if, you know, if one is working on a relatively canonical figure, you know where that person's papers are and you spend a lot of time in that library or in those libraries and of course if it's somebody who's had a transatlantic career or you know multi uh you know many different locations then maybe you have to go to a couple of different locations and libraries the challenge um with with Warren was that um he did live in a number of different places and but also that the path that his career took Meant that his stuff wasn't going to be really saved. I mean, if to the extent that it um, was extant in collections, it was going to be in the sort of repositories of people who were more, who have become better established than him, who knew during their careers that their work was going, you know, was going to be worth keeping around. Um, you know, someone may have donated to a place and um so just the fact that he kind of reached this certain level of accomplishment and um fame modest as it was but then fell off and you know so at the point in his life where it would have made sense to bequeath a set of papers or even save them in the first place he was not in a position um to be doing that and he had cut a lot of his ties so so that aspect of you know what is the available archive is kind of one, you know, one piece of it. Um, the, you know, the other thing I think I was trying to engage with in the epilogue was just the idea of kind of cultural formations that, um, that aren't so discernible to us in retrospect and sort of what kinds of questions the existing archives make possible and what kinds of questions we would need to try to think about in order to kind of bring into visibility or bring into being or recover, um, you know, piece together, um, a different, a different kind of archive. And I think, uh, today we're much more conversant in notions about transnational black culture formations. Um, you know, he just lived and wrote in a time when, um, the discourse around that was quite different not not certainly not non-existent but um, but but different and you know he wasn't somebody like Marcus Garvey whose version of uh, black transnationalism was going to be preserved um, for its controversy for its impact on communities so I'm not sure if that really answers your question about the archive but um, that's I think some of what the epilogue was trying to to piece out and, you know, and, and just kind of listening for um, listening for gaps, too, and, and trying to figure figure out what those gaps meant, because a, a lot of people wrote to each other about Eric Walrond. And so my job was to figure out who did he know? When would they have like, have been likely to be writing about him? Right. And where's their stuff?
0: Yeah, I guess it's kind of a puzzle then, because as you say, he he was in touch with a lot of people and they were all sort of writing back and forth about him and sort of trying to get at the person through a lot of the correspondence that you mentioned and those kinds of things. It's really fascinating as an exercise in, in, as you say, um, recovering this person. Um, So, okay, so he spent a broad overview of his life. He spent first part of his life in Guyana and then Barbados. And then he went to Panama and then he lived in New York and then he went to Paris and then back to New York. And then he went to London and then he was in a small town in England for 12 years. I think that's right. All of those things. Um, So I'm wondering, do you think he was chasing something or was he on a diasporic circuit? There were a lot of people who were doing the same kind of thing, moving from Paris Back to New York and then London and it, it, it's I, I couldn't really mm-hmm. tell if he was kind of part of this larger thing yeah. or if he was moving around on his own. Maybe a little bit of both.
1: It 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 does seem to me that it was a bit of both. Um, but I think that your initial characterization of it is, I mean, touches on something important. Just his restlessness. I think that's the word that I use in the book. But there really is. I mean, you're absolutely right that there are patterns and one could talk, for example, about in the late 20s, the number of his contemporaries, African-American writers and intellectuals and artists going from New York to Paris. Just as sort of the most concrete example of that, he could certainly be said to have been part of that wave. And one could say similar things about, you know, migrants from Panama to New York City at the time that he came. So he's... At once, I think of a piece with these broader movements um, and yet also incredibly restless uh, and and sort of ambitious, um, always seemed to me always sort of looking for, you know, the the next right place that's finally going to make things click and propel, you know, him and his career into something bigger and better and more satisfying. I mean, I think that when he was in New York might be the one exception to that um, in the 20s, despite his sense of alienation and dislocation that seemed clear then, there's my, my sense from reading his correspondence and other things about him is that the the kind of excitement um, and the kind of institution building that were happening in Harlem in the mid to late 20s felt to him like, if not home, then at least like something he, he could get comfortable with and excited about. So... Um, it's harder for me to get that, to get a sense of that in other places, but yeah, but certainly in ter- if, I, if I were going to sort of psychologize him, uh, my sense is that as you say, um, there was very much this kind of individual, a kind of antsiness, you know, that, that made him bounce around and think maybe, maybe this next place will make, you know, we'll, will I'll feel settled and I'll um, be able to resolve you know that sense of that sense of restlessness and and movement
0: so he was a lot of things and you make a really compelling case for him as a superb writer um and i found that your interpretation of the writing is woven in with the account of his life so sometimes you're talking about the stories and sometimes you're talking about the life and they they're really kind of woven together in this lovely way and i'm i'm wondering how you came to that as a writing strategy
1: mhm yeah Um, well, I mean, I, I felt like I, I wanted to draw on my, my, what I, what I think of as my own strength and my own disciplinary training, right. Which is in like, in thinking in specific ways about, about literature, um, its relationship to social history and a number of the historical questions, that I'm always writing about in sort of whatever I work on in literary studies. So I wanted to make sure that 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 was leveraged, I guess, in the work um, and to figure out a way to, yeah, to make it, um, if not seamless, then sort of mutually reinforcing with um, what needed to be said about you know, how each month passed or each year passed. Um, and, and I felt those were both equally interesting exercises, um, I, that I could make both of them equally interesting. I felt like I could make a reader interested in certain observations about the work that he wrote, um, but that I could also make interesting, um, you know, the movement of the life itself. And they, of course, as with many writers, but especially I think with, with this one, um they create opportunities for that kind of dialogue so it felt to me um like a challenge but not like something that would be forced and um that yeah that there were there were probably uh there were probably ways to do it that um you know that that made those two kind of moves mutually illuminating I think that the, the one the only one thing I would add that's a kind of pitfall that that concerned me about it is that um and I tell my students this all the time, right? You can't just sort of read the life and off the work extrapolate, sort of read the work as a transparent window onto the person's biography. And so I was very I tried to be very aware of um when, at, at what point Right, um, the the work needed to be treated, if not autonomously, then as a kind of artifact that wasn't reducible to, you know, some kind of documentary account of his real life, and that was a fun challenge. I'm not sure that I always met it, but um, that was an interesting, interesting challenge to, to struggle with.
0: Yeah. So okay, so the book Tropic Death. Sounds amazing. And as we were chatting before the recording started, I told you that I wasn't familiar with it. I hadn't heard of it, but I now have ordered it and I really want to read it. So um, can you talk about it for listeners who aren't familiar with this book? Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was published in 1926. And so I think the first thing this is, you know, my historicist uh, impulse is, is that it's it's very much kind of of its time, and if I can say of its place, and and this is why it's it you know it has certain what what we think of as kind of modernist qualities that we associated with with you know literary modernism, in the sense that it's very it's very dialogue driven, um, it's very it, it's very comfortable, sort of. Turning on um turning on iron you know, irony and not very much um exposition from the narrative. So like those are that's a very I know it's a very like sort of formalistic description of it, but that's certainly one of the challenges is that in the same way that we think of, you know, picking up something by Faulkner as being a challenge, you kind of feel like when reading Tropic Death, it's sort of like, why isn't this guy really meeting me halfway? It's like, you know, it's kinda hard to read because the plot isn't always clear. So it's a it's very much I feel like of that time. But of course, it's uh, it's also part of um you know a movement in African American letters which was not just um kind of, you know, coextensive with modernism but was really trying to um, you know, was really trying to self-consciously um place black life and black characters um in in a in in complicated settings with complex interiority. And um I think the 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 distinction, I think what makes wall, what makes Tropic Death sort of so bracing and so different from either of those phenomena that I just described is that he set his entire book in the Caribbean, which is not surprising, given who he was, but that was simply not happening at that at that time it just it just wasn't you know it just wasn't done and and uh there were ways in which at the time you know readers observers of his work were able to kind of assimilate tropic death to kind of this broader evolving narrative about what it meant to be a new Negro writer. But as I mentioned in the book, it's the, the thing that's really striking about Tropic Death is that in order to do that, you really have to ignore or minimize a lot of dimensions of it. The the speech of the characters, for instance, you know, it is, is kind of the, the most striking aspect of, um, of the book. And, um, you know there weren't other writers writing like that at the time. We have many since then, but um, it, it's and it, it's also this incredibly um, kind of naturalistic and fatalistic book. It's brutal. Uh, it's you know, tropic death, as the as the title describes. Um, there's at least one character, usually one, sometimes more, uh, that dies in every single story, or that ends with the you know promise of, of a very imminent death um and so that's the that's the other kind of most striking aspect of it is um you know is is this i don't know what to call it morbidity but it's um you know that version of of kind of a naturalistic uh treatment it certainly doesn't it doesn't prettify the um the caribbean so
0: no, but at the same time, and what I found really interesting about it was that in contrast to people like John Seabrook, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, who are writing these very sensationalistic things about Haiti, for instance, during the U.S. Mm-hmm. occupation, and out of that, this kind of whole craze with voodoo and all of that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. sound sensationalist in that way. It sounds mm-hmm. much more sympathetic to the characters um, that it's looking at, but but at the same time, it has this very dark uh these dark undertones and so i i thought that 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 made it sound really really interesting to me
1: i think the difference right is that i mean i i try to make the case in the book that tropic death is a, is a kind of it is a kind of anti-colonial novel it's a very incisive rumination on colonialism but it doesn't make that sort of overt case that you know that some Readers might expect picking up, uh, you know, uh, a book by a writer who went through the experiences that, that he did or it might not satisfy sort of our contemporary expectations for what that what that sounds like to write an anti-colonial novel. But certainly that's a big difference um, between Tropic Death and, well, as you say, and Seabrook and, and any number of other writers who would have been um, who were writing sensationally or otherwise um, about about. Uh, Caribbean culture and uh, these various locations and and you know and he he set these stories in multiple different locations. It's not a book you know it has ten it has ten different stories in it, and they're set in multiple locations around the around sort of the whole region and um it's really a book about migrations um between these places as well
0: right. And I actually, I think that my next question gets at that a little bit, too. I'm, I'm curious about the New York setting. So he coincided in New York with Garvey and with County Cullen and lots of big names of the Harlem Renaissance. And you have some really interesting things to say about his relationship to blackness and the way that he writes about blackness and the way he brings the Caribbean into that conversation. And it seems like it's with a bit of ambivalence. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a complicated understanding of blackness. And I think that you're arguing um, that we should think of the Harlem Renaissance differently because of his contribution. Is that is that right?
1: I I definitely am saying that I'm certainly not the first to say it. Um, there's a lot of really interesting scholarship now about how how to kind of read or listen for what those Caribbean contours of the, of the period and the movement were like. And just, uh, I guess, a kind of thumbnail way to put that would be that a lot of people who were around at the time and writing at the time recognized just how West Indian uh, Harlem was and that over time we've kind of... Um, inherited a more homogenized view both of what it means to be black in the United States, but also what the Harlem Renaissance represents and what the literary Harlem Renaissance new Negro movement represents. Um, and, and, and in fact um, to his contemporaries uh, the, you know, the cultural and national differences and especially the Caribbean influence was quite palpable, so yeah.
0: So I'm wondering. I know you're not a Caribbeanist, but I'm wondering if we can flip that question and ask it of the Caribbean. So, how does the Caribbean look different if we take Walrand and maybe others like him into account?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it, it, it's hard. Um, I mean, the the kind of the classic. Narrative about Caribbean writing is sort of its you know its emergence in the fifties or so with writers who you know who go away who go to london and um you know they write care they sort of create this uh tradition of Caribbean literature from abroad and you know and there of course there's the their French antillean version of that narrative as well um But I, so I think in a way I I see Walrond as kind of a precursor to that. Um, But I, you know, I think the thing that Caribbean, Caribbean studies, certainly Caribbean literary studies always struggles with, right. Is um, does this mean, I mean, for example, does this mean maybe we can think of as one of my colleagues at, at Rutgers likes to say, like Michelle Stevens likes to say, you know, the, we can think of the United States or certainly Harlem, the island of Manhattan, as an extension of the Caribbean archipelago.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that a different way to
1: spatialize it.
0: Yeah, I think that Caribbeanists need to think more about that, actually. Um, so I loved the descriptions of Paris. Uh, and I'm wondering if those, if your descriptions were informed by his own descriptions, because it it gets very lyrical. And I know that Paris is always kind of romanticized in lots of people's eyes. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you came to to that writing.
1: <laughs> That's funny that you say that, because I was I was very conscious about trying to be lyrical in the in the writing about rural England. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I th- I think I I think I know what you what you mean. Um, well, I think in, a, in the in the writing of a lot of the authors uh, who a lot of the African American authors who went uh, you know at the same time that he did to um, to Paris, you know they they spoke in full throated terms about its about its charms, about its aesthetic charms, but also about that feeling, that sensation, uh, quite physical sensation of having a kind of burden of race. If not removed, then lightened on their shoulders, and um, and so I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of capture that um, you know that sensation, that account. I mean, I think, for example, um, when Gwendolyn Bennett, I think a quote from Gwendolyn Bennett's um, diary or some of her letters back home, and she was a close friend of Walron. and um, you know that's that's that was very palpable in her in her writing about just um, coming over there. And then too, I think there was for, for a Caribbean writer um, to go to Paris, there was as well an encounter with a kind of more expansive and internally differentiated idea of what it meant to be a Negro in, in the parlance of the time, Um, because the narrative around race and race progress in the United States, and even in in New York, with its high percentage of of um, West Indians, was still uh, very much a narrative about African Americans. And um, and I think what was certainly exciting for for Waller and about Paris uh, was this incredible diversity within you know, this kind of blunt, overarching category of the Negro or the Black person.
0: So, but in Paris, things don't go particularly well for him. And he (laughs) becomes increasingly desperate financially, career-wise, and even health-wise. And so I'm wondering, actually, for that section, how hard was that to piece together?
1: Yeah, that was so hard. That was very hard. And in fact, I think there's like a whole year of of maybe not a whole year, but a big part of a year, which is just like a blank, I'm still not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that definitely required, um, you know, fishing, <laughs> fishing around, um, quite a bit in, in other people's papers. Um, the key, the kind of the key that unlocked a lot of that chapter for me was, I was reading a book by Gerald Horne about Shirley Graham, who later married W.E.B. Du Bois. Later, by by later, I mean after the period uh, in which I was interested in reading about her. And what what Gerald Horne had had put in a footnote was a set of correspondence between Shirley Graham and Eric Walrand that turned on and revolved around um, the time that they apparently shared in, in London together. And so uh, the papers for Shirley Graham are in the Radcliffe uh, Library at um, at Harvard. And so I spent a couple of days there. And that was, in terms of that chapter in particular, that was kind of a goldmine. It was one of the few times during the research of the book where I felt like, oh, okay, like the, things all of a sudden fell very much into place. And the correspondence with Shirley Graham um, kind of solved a lot of the puzzles for me. Um, not all of them, but put into place a lot of pieces that I was then able to kind of build on and extrapolate from to, you know, to kind of um, cobble together at least the, um, you know, plausible um, plausible kind of narrative. And uh, And there was a lot, there's been a lot of really Really neat work done on Black Paris, could say, and um, and its relationship to Harlem, and that that work is all within the past, really, ten or fifteen years. So, you know, trying to kind of toggle between that that really really interesting, um, you know, work by Brent Edwards and and um, Tyler Stovall and, and and others that that really helped situate what I was beginning to see um, in the, in the archival stuff that I had found um, about Walrend and Shirley Graham and others.
0: Yeah. The the relationship with Shirley Graham was really fascinating actually. And um, although you could tell that the correspondence was quite rich and, and, and changed over time and all of those kinds of things there, there's a little bit of a central mystery about what their relationship actually was, isn't there?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, um, I, I, I tried not to speculate too much in this book in, into directions that I couldn't substantiate in, in the record. Um, and you know, that was an example where it seemed to me quite possible they were romantically involved. Um, but it's, At the end of the day, to me, it was much less important to try to definitively say, you know, this was a romance or not than it was just to flesh out this incredibly rich and very intimate um, and short lived, um, you know, relationship.
0: Yeah. In the end, one is persuaded that it doesn't matter. Right. Because because, as you say, the relationship was so rich and there was there were sort of changes throughout it and. Um, they were asking each other for different kinds of things and all of that was was really fascinating.
1: It's a little heartbreaking yeah. uh, too because you see the way like as he kind of deteriorates and his career prospects deteriorate, he becomes so despondent that he's kind of a jerk to her. <laughs> and, um, and that was on the one hand, you know, incredible as a biographer to like, you know, not stumble into, but, you know, locate, This these materials and 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 also kind of devastating to see the ways in which he really leaned um, on on her for much more than she deserved to, um, you know, to get from 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 him, especially since it sounds like they had a very kind of fulfilling um, and, you know, mutual um, relationship during the brief time that they spent together in Paris itself.
0: Yeah, all of that nuance comes through, definitely. So, uh, okay, so let's talk about The Big Ditch, which is one of my favorite book titles ever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the most surprising thing about his career comes at the end of his life, and this book, which is about the Panama Canal, and he's been lugging around for a lot, many, many years, I I guess, is finally published in serial form, in a newsletter published by the runway roundway psychiatric hospital. Um, yeah. were you, was that a surprise to you? Did you know that before going in to, to this research?
1: Yeah, I knew it. I knew it because I've had, I mean, I had so much help in a way getting the, the, the archival research kind of up, up and running by, um, well, Louis Paris who I mentioned previously, um, and, uh, a colleague, who he had worked with, Carl Wade from the University of the West Indies. The two of them had had pieced together and and uncovered a a lot of things, including the fact of the Roundway Review um, publication of, you know, pieces from The Big Ditch. And um, previously, previous to to them, um, Robert Bone, who taught at Columbia University Teachers College, had started uh, started a biography of Eric Walrand in the early to mid 1980s, and wound up um, n- not being able to complete it. And Bone and Paris Candela and Carl Wade had, um, it, and in effect, created a kind of archive of this fugitive material um, and ephemeral ephemeral stuff, basically, um, and a lot of it. Was, um, you know, sitting in, in Louis Parascandela's apartment in Queens, and he very generously let me visit and comb through all this stuff. So the initial, my initial encounter with the Roundway Review materials, um, that was because he had managed to get some of it from a library. I think it was the, um, I, th- I think it was the Atlanta, the Robert Woodruff Library had some volumes of, uh, of this material, um, the details now escape me. But it, it it existed, not a complete run, but some of it there. So, it, was it a total surprise? No. But I can tell you that when I went to England and I went went to Wiltshire, and um, there's a, a an amazing little uh, facility in the town that the hospital. Um, occupied the hospital no longer exists it was turned into condos but in that archive it it was extraordinary to be leafing through this psychiatric hospital uh journals i mean these are the literary journals that you know the patients and the staff um created and you know to find these highly researched footnoted um sometimes even kind of academic um accounts Sort of month after month, you know, for many many iterations, um, alongside uh, uh, this other material in the um, in the psychiatric hospitals, uh, uh, you know, journal. So it was it was kind of bracing to think again to to think in terms of um, what was sort of lost to you know Caribbean Black British writing that this hadn't been. Published in another forum while he was there, um, but also exciting to be able, you know, to to be able to re- recover it and to see it and to offer an account now of this book that was, as you say, many years in process, um, and had some interesting interesting things to say about the history of Panama. I mean, I would just add to that that I think that what we are left with, what I was left with in the Roundway Review publications, um, which he actually entitled The Second Battle, that was one version of what I probably, I think probably was actually sort of three different versions of the same study that he was um, conducting, sort of trying to figure out which genre this book was going to be. And uh, I think what ended up in in the roundway review was just one of those, one of those attempts.
0: Yeah. So wrapping up now, cause I've taken up a lot of your time. This is a tragic story in a lot of ways, but I got the feeling that you didn't want to leave us with a sense of tragedy. So <laughs> I'm wondering um, to invoke Hayden White, which, which trope are you aiming for in the way we think about, <laughs> About. Can I, am I
1: allowed to have it both ways? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I, I, I wanted, I wanted to, I didn't want to pull any punches about the about the tragedy because I think precisely in the tragedy of his life, that's that's in a way that's where some of the inspiration for me lies. Anyway, right? We have we have a kind of an extraordinary trenchant observer of racism, colonialism in all of its manifestations on multiple continents. Uh, That's, that's incredibly valuable. And somebody who tried to transmute that, those kinds of, you know, lines of thought into, um, into this writing that just kind of bursts. um, I mean, really sometimes it literally feels like it's just going to burst out from the sentences it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing effort. And I think if nothing else, that the effort itself is, is incredibly inspiring. And it's inspiring just to know that, um, you know, as individuals and communities are struggling with many similar phenomena that uh, Eric Walrond was struggling with, whether it has to do with social issues or issues of moving into uh, life as an, as an artist. Um community building um, people came before, and it, right it didn't it didn't always go well for them, and there are individual reasons for that, and there are social reasons. Um, but uh, even though he you know he didn't actually end life quite a despondent man because, as I mentioned, he lived just long enough to know that Tropic Death was going to be published. Was going to be purchased and published, and it was it was going to be in paperback, and uh, it looked like it was going to be able to be available for school children, and all of this was certainly not enough to, um, you know, to feel that his for him to feel that his career had been salvaged, um, you know, to his satisfaction. Um, But but I think that I think that it's you know not necessarily to end on a cheerful note, but just to say you know he lived long enough to see. A very different era in Black Letters in England. And um uh that's really cool. I mean I think that that's an that's to me, you know, those are some of the inspiring dimensions of the of the story.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's worth a lot, actually. Um so thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you. It's it's been really fun to talk to you about the book, and I so appreciate your attention to this book and what you're doing for Caribbean Studies. So thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure.